have your Bibles, please turn with me to Revelations chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. This morning, we're going to continue our study on the seven letters to the seven churches, which is found in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. If you recall last week, as we were looking at the study of the seven letters to the seven churches, we looked at the second letter, which was written to the church of Smyrna. There in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Now, in his message to the church of Smyrna, the Lord Jesus took the time to commend or praise the church for their spiritual wealth and for their spiritual persecution. The church in Smyrna was a poor church materially. They didn't have too much money or they didn't have too much wealth in the world's eyes. But the Lord Jesus told them that they were spiritually rich. They were spiritually wealthy. And if you recall, we said that true wealth is spiritual wealth. Everything else is going to burn. So make sure that you're not loving the things of this world because the things of this world are not lasting. But the things of the Lord are lasting. Amen. And so we need to make sure that we're rich in Christ and not rich in our bank account. There's nothing wrong with having money, but just make sure the money doesn't have you. Amen. Now, after commending the church, the Lord Jesus exhorted them in two ways. The Lord exhorted them to be fearless and the Lord exhorted them to be faithful. You see, the church in Smyrna, they were a persecuted church. They were going through tribulation. They were going through persecution and the persecution would continue. But the Lord reminded them that they had nothing to fear and he encouraged them to stay faithful. The Lord said to the church, don't fear. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to go through tribulation. You're going to go through hardship and trials. But don't fear. I'm with you. I got your back. Fear not. Just be faithful. Until death. And I will give you the crown of life. Those were such Amazing words of exhortation. And they really apply to us because at times we get afraid. At times we are fearful. We struggle. We wrestle with fear. But the Lord reminds us that we have nothing to fear because he's with us. And we just need to continue to be faithful. How many can say amen to that? Amen. So that's what we covered last Sunday. And this morning, we're going to continue our study and we're going to look at the third letter of the seven letters. Now, this letter was written to the church of Pergamos, the letter to the church of Pergamos. And it's found in Revelations chapter two, verses 12 through 17. And so if you have your Bibles open with me. Let's read it together and we'll begin our study this morning. This is what it says. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos, right? These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Very interesting. And you, had, and you hold fast to my name. And did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Another interesting phrase. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against him with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And we'll finish our reading there in verse 17. And so this morning we're going to examine the letter to the church of Pergamos. Now, if you look with me in verse 12, the Lord begins his message in the way that he begins all the messages. And he declares to the angel of the church in Pergamos, right? Now, if you recall in the past, we have said that the term angel here in these seven letters is most likely a reference to the pastor or the spiritual leader of the church. The Greek word for angel, angelos, it simply means messenger. Now, typically, it refers to a heavenly messenger, what we know as angels. But occasionally in the scriptures, it refers to a human messenger. And here in verse 12, and in these seven letters to the seven churches, that would be the case, most likely, that the Lord is referring to a human messenger, possibly the pastor or spiritual leader of the church. Now, the city of Pergamos was located about 45 miles north of Smyrna, of the city that we covered last Sunday. It was a very popular, a very prosperous, and a very prominent city in the region of Asia Minor. It was actually the capital city of Asia Minor. So it was a very important city, very prosperous, very popular. But the city, even though it was very famous and popular and prominent, it was also very immoral, very wicked, and it was heavenly involved in the worship of idols and in the worship of false gods. Throughout the city, you would find temples dedicated to Zeus, dedicated to Athena, dedicated to Asclepius, to Dionysus, to Caesar. The list went on and on of temples dedicated to false gods located in the city precincts. Now, archaeologists tell us something very interesting, and they tell us that in Pergamos, in ancient days, in the city, the center of the city, excuse me, on top of what we call the Acropolis, which was a, a hill that was in the center of the city, about 800 feet high, archaeologists tell us that there was a glorious temple dedicated to Zeus in the center of the city. Now, Zeus, they considered the king of all the gods. He was like the, the metal metal, the, the main god of all the false gods. It's kind of interesting that a god needs a god, you know, false gods, of course. Now, so in the center of the city, there was this temple dedicated to Zeus. Now, in the temple, there was a huge altar that was referred to as the great altar of Zeus. It was approximately 100 square feet, very big, very high, 
very glorious. Now, on this altar, the priests of Zeus would have sacrificed sacrifices and offerings to Zeus. Now, the reason why I take the time to mention that to you is because in verse 13, Jesus makes reference that Satan's throne was located in Pergamos. And many scholars believe that that is a reference to this great altar of Zeus. Many Bible teachers believe that when Jesus tells this church that they dwell where Satan's throne is, that it was a reference to this great altar of Zeus, which was located in the temple of Zeus. You know, it's interesting, but presently you can find this altar in Germany in a museum in West Berlin. They have it there um, on display, and it's actually believed that Adolf Hitler, during his reign, would frequently go visit this great altar of Zeus. You know, you kind of put two to two together, Satan's throne, this great altar, Hitler and the Nazis, and it kind of matches and connects. And so it was to the church of Pergamos that the Lord addressed this third message. And we want to look at five things, five things concerning it. And so if you have your Bibles open, your outline now, your notebook ready and your pen in your hand. <laughs> that was a lot of things. I'm like, bah, bah, bah. let's look at the first thing. And the first thing is the description of Christ, the description of Christ. The Lord Jesus describes himself in one way to the church of Pergamos. And it's found there in verse 12. Read it with me, family. The Lord describes himself by saying, these things says he who has the sharp two edged sword. So the Lord describes himself as having a sharp two edged sword. Now, it's interesting, but the word that the Lord used for sword, it refers to a long spear like sword. It, it, it really is describing a large barbarian two handed sword. Not a, not a short Roman sword. That, that's a different word in the Greek. But this is speaking of a, a, a big, long, barbarian sword. But one of those swords that just with one swing, you crush and you slay everything you hit with it. You know, kind of like the sword that my dad has. That, that's the word that the Lord uses. Now, this description by the Lord, it's very interesting. And this is what the Lord is trying to teach us. With this description, he's telling us, he's telling the church that he is ready to bring judgment. So this description speaks of Jesus's readiness to bring judgment. The sword was used to bring judgment. And you can read Romans chapter 13, verse 4. And Paul tells us that the government officials, the soldiers, that they have the sword for a reason. If somebody's acting up, they're ready to bring judgment and wrath with the sword. And so the Lord describes himself as a mighty warrior with a two-edged sword, ready, willing, prepared to bring judgment. You know, when I read that description, one of the first things I think about is this. Jesus Christ is not only a lamb, but Jesus Christ is also a lion. Amen. You know, Jesus, he's not only the Lamb of God, but he is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. 
And here we see the Lord as a mighty warrior, ready, willing, prepared to bring judgment. You know, oftentimes we have the wrong perception of Jesus. We have a 21st century Hollywood perception of Jesus. You know, when we think of Jesus, we think of a light skinned blue eyed, Brad Pitt looking type of guy. And really what we do is we make Jesus very feminine, like a, a passive coward, like, excuse this expression, but like a, a little wuss. Now that's a lot of times like our perception of Jesus. But the truth is that the Bible teaches us that, yes, he has a, a humble, a gentle, a soft side. He's like a lamb, but he also has a courageous, strong, furious side. He's a lion, a mighty warrior, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Listen, you don't want to mess with Jesus. And we must always remember that that our savior is not a little wuss. Amen. We got to remember that our Savior, man, he's a mighty warrior, the king of kings, the Lord of Lord, the captain of the army of the Lord, the captain of our salvation, mighty to save. That's our Savior. Amen. And so Jesus describes himself with this two edged sword in his hand, ready to bring judgment. Now, the reason why the Lord describes himself in this way to the church in Pergamos, because the Lord wanted the church to understand, listen to this, okay, that if they didn't clean up their act, he was going to bring judgment upon them. You see, Pergamos, as we're going to read in a few moments, they struggled with compromise. They struggled with sin, compromising their faith, compromising their convictions. Pergamos, they were mixed with the world. There was a little bit of the world in this church. And so the Lord begins his message wanting the church to understand that he means business. That he's not messing around, that he's ready, he's willing, he's prepared to bring judgment, to bring correction if they don't clean up their act. Listen to this. Our husband, Jesus, he is serious about the purity, holiness and integrity of his bride. Jesus is serious about our holiness. Jesus desires and he demands a holy bride. Amen. And he's willing, he's prepared, he's ready to send correction to clean her up. Jesus is not afraid to correct us. He's not afraid to bring judgment upon us if we're not acting the way he wants us to act. If we find ourselves straying away or mingling with sin, Jesus loves us so much that he's ready, he's willing to clean us up, to correct us. Like my mom would say to give us a little pow pow, if you know what I mean. You know, love sometimes has to be tough. Love has to bring correction. You know, I I remember when I was young, my parents used to discipline me. They used to correct me. They used to spank me. You know, amen, amen to that, you know. How many of you were spanked? You know, no, we don't have to. Some of you guys are having flashbacks, you know. But I remember they used to always tell me, son, you don't understand this at this moment. But we're doing this because we love you. I'd be like, what? You love me and you're spanking me. 
If you love me, you would give me money. If you love me, you'd take me to McDonald's. That could be my correction. You know, son, we're going to go to McDonald's. And I want you to think about what you did while you're eating chicken McNuggets. (laughs) But the truth is, love is tough. And love brings correction. And so the Lord Jesus, he loves us so much that he's not afraid or he's not hesitant to correct us when we need to be corrected. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6 says this, My son, or we could say even my daughter, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Whom the Lord loves, he corrects, And scourges every son whom he receives. And so the Lord loves us. Therefore, the Lord corrects us, chastises us at time to bring us to the place where we need to be. Because remember, the Lord is concerned not so much with our happiness, but with our holiness. The Bible teaches us that God says, be holy for I am holy. And if to be holy, we need a little correction, a little pow, pow, a little strain up is well worth it, my friends. And so first, the Lord describes himself as having a two edged sword. There we see this Mighty warrior, the Lord Jesus Christ, ready, prepared, willing to bring judgment to this compromising church. Let's look at the second thing we see. And the second thing we see is the word of commendation, the word of praise. The Lord Jesus commends the church in verse 13 for two things. Two things, and and let's look at them together, family. They're in your notes. First, he commended them for their personal loyalty. Their personal loyalty. Read with me verse 13. Jesus said, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name. And so even though this church lived in a wicked, immoral city, Satan's throne, as described by Jesus, the believers, they were staying loyal to Christ and they were holding fast to his name. In other words, instead of letting go of Christ and instead of giving in to their environment and surroundings they were holding fast to his name whenever i think of that i think of them like just hugging jesus holding fast lord we're not going to let you go they were staying committed to their savior they were holding fast and being loyal to christ now If you notice with me, though, again, there in verse 13, this blessed me so much when I discovered it. It was like a little nugget the Lord showed me. The church's loyalty, it was not to a religion. It was not to a preacher. It was not to a church. It was not even to an organization or a denomination, but their loyalty was to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Lord told them, you hold fast to my name. It was something personal. It was something intimate. They were being loyal to a person, Jesus. And when I read that, I said, wow, what a lesson. For us, because a lot of times as Christians, we're loyal to a church first, we're loyal to 
a pastor or a preacher or a movement first. And a lot of times we forget that our loyalty first and foremost has to be to Jesus. So many are loyal to their ministries. So many are loyal to the prayer meeting. But are they loyal to their alone time with Jesus? Are they loyal to ministering before the Lord? You know, a lot of people don't like to miss church. Amen. There's nothing wrong with that. Amen. You know, I wish more people would come to church. Don't misunderstand me. But we have all these worries about missing practice or missing the meeting or missing church or missing the prayer meeting. But we are so quick to miss our alone time with Jesus. And there's our loyalty in a church, in a leader, in an organization, in a movement, instead of first and foremost being to our Savior. Wow. But this church in Pergamos, they were holding fast, the Lord says, to my name. There was a personal loyalty to the Son of God. And the Lord noticed it. He was aware of it. And the Lord praised them for it. He commended them. Now, the second way the Lord commended them was for their public confession. First, their personal loyalty. Secondly, their public confession. Let's continue to read verse 13. The Lord says, and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so not only was this church loyal to Christ, but the church was also publicly confessing Christ. In other words, they were not denying Christ. They were not ashamed of Christ, but they were unashamed, confessing the Lord Jesus Christ even though they were in the midst of persecution. And the Lord makes reference to Antipas. And, you know, scholars are a little divided who exactly that was. Some say he was one of the pastors, one of the church leaders there. We don't really know. We know a little bit about his name. His his name means against all, Antipas. And so he was against all of the immorality and the wickedness and he was standing up and publicly confessing Christ even in the midst of persecution and this church was doing the same they weren't denying Christ they weren't ashamed of Christ but they were living loud and proud for the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord took notice and the Lord commended them for it the Lord gave them a word of praise. You know, when I think about that, I think about Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written. The just shall live by faith. Amen. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And friend, brother, sister, visitor, I would just ask you this question. Are you unashamed of Christ? Are you publicly confessing Christ or are you publicly denying Christ? You know, I I think it's so sad that the world They're so unashamed about sin. You know, they have their parades and their white parties and their tailgate parties and their toga parties. And everything is out in the open. The world, sin, look at me. I'm living an immoral lifestyle and I'm proud of it. And I think how sad that Christians who have the truth, who are serving the true and living God, Man, they're not publicly confessing Christ, but they're publicly denying Christ. And they're ashamed. They like to let people know they're Christians at church. But when it comes to work, when it comes to school, 
when it comes to family reunions, they kind of like go in secrecy. They kind of are like secret Christians. And don't let that be you, family. You have nothing to be ashamed of. The Lord says if we deny him before man, he's going to deny us before the father. And so be unashamed of the gospel. Publicly confess Christ wherever you go. Whether it's at school or work or at the store. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be afraid to take a stand for Jesus. And don't be ashamed to rap the king. If you know what I mean. Amen. Amen. So we see that kind of rhymed, huh? Man, that wasn't even in my notes. I was like inspired by the Lord, you know. So the second thing we see is the word of commendation. Let's look at the third thing. The Lord commended this church. He praised them. But everything was not all good in the church. And he brought them a word of correction. And and that's the next thing we want to look at. The third thing, the word of correction by Christ. The Lord brought a word of correction against two groups who were within the church of Pergamos. And so let's look at them together, family. And on this point, you need to stay with me because this is sometimes where people get a little confused. But if we all pay attention, we're going to understand what the Lord is speaking about. First, the Lord brought a word of correction against those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam. Read with me verse 14. The Lord says, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So the first word of correction or the word of condemnation was against those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Now, the doctrine of Balaam, listen to this, is a reference to the book of Numbers, chapter 22 through 25. And the doctrine of Balaam speaks of spiritual and moral compromise. That's what it's a reference to compromise, spiritual and moral compromise. Let me briefly give you the story, the background in the book of Numbers. We read the story of a prophet who name was Balaam. He was the prophet who was rebuked by the donkey. We all know that story. Now, this prophet, he was hired by the king of Moab, Balak, to pronounce a cursing over the nation of Israel. But as you read the story, you learn that no matter how hard the prophet tried to curse the nation of Israel, he wasn't able to. But instead, he blessed them. And it happened four times. He tried to curse them, and he ended up speaking a blessing over them. And so because he was not successful at cursing the people, the prophet told the king of Moab how to successfully bring the people to a place of cursing. He wasn't able to curse the people, so he advised the king how to bring the people to the place of cursing. And this is what the prophet told the king. He said, king, send all the beautiful women of your kingdom into the camp of Israel. The women will entice the man. They will intermarry with the man and they will cause the man to fall into idolatry and sexual immorality. That was the plan. That was the scheme. That was the counsel that the prophet gave to the king. 
If you want to curse the people, I can't curse them. God's blessed them. I can't curse what God has blessed. But I could teach you and tell you how to bring them to a place of cursing. Send all your women over there. Send the beautiful girls. The beautiful girls are going to cause them to stumble. They're going to intermarry, intermingle with the people. And they're going to bring them to a place of spiritual idolatry and sexual immorality. And you'll never guess what happened. The plan worked to perfection. The women of Moab enticed the Israelites. And the Israelites, they compromised their faith. And they fell into idolatry and immorality. And so when the Lord brings a word of correction against a group within the church of Pergamos, the Lord was bringing a word of correction against those who were compromising their faith. Those who were bringing the ways of the world into the church. Those who were intermingling, who were mixing, who had one foot in the church, but also had one foot in the world. And the Lord, he wasn't pleased about it. He wasn't happy about this intermingling with light and darkness. And he brought a word of correction. He says, I have this against you. You have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. You have those who are bringing the world into the church. And listen to this. As Christians, oh man, I can't stress this enough. We need to beware of spiritual and moral compromise. As Christians, we need to be careful. Because at times it's easy to give in. It's easy to compromise. And this is what we do. We justify it. And we say, oh, it's just a little something. It's just a little lie. It's just one movie. It's just one song. It's just one outfit. It's just one word. And we are so prone to compromise. But what happens is that a little compromise leads to more compromise and more compromise and more compromise until we find ourselves practicing sin. You know, sin is like cancer. It just spreads and it just grows. And that's why we need to stay away from it. And we need to guard ourselves and we need to stay set apart and holy before the Lord. And we must not bring the things of the world into the church and into our lives. Remember this. God has called us to be holy, to be pure and to be set apart from the world. And there should be no hint of compromise in our lives. There should be no appearance of sin. Paul tells Timothy, let those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul tells us that this is the will of God, your sanctification. That God has called us to be set apart. That's the will of God for our lives. And we must not intermingle with the world. We must not hold to the doctrine of Balaam. But everywhere we go, everything we do in church or outside of church, we must be holy. Because without holiness, you're not going to see the Lord. We got to be light. We got to be salt. And we got to honor 
the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is looking for a holy church, not a rich church, not a filled church, not a beautiful looking church. But the Lord is looking for a holy church, purity, holiness, sanctification. That's what needs to be taught and stressed within the church today in America. Because like Pergamos, American churches are filled with worldliness. But God has called us to be holy. Amen. Amen. The second thing we want to look at concerning the word of correction was not only did the Lord bring a word against those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, but secondly, the Lord brought a word of correction against those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Try to say that five times. Nicolaitans. And that's found in verse 15. If you can look with me, family, the Lord said, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And look at these strong words by the Lord. Which thing I hate. Man, that's a strong word, huh? The Lord said, I I hate this doctrine. I hate this teaching. Now, scholars, I'm going to be honest with you. They're divided on what exactly the doctrine of the Nicolaitan was a reference to. Some believe that it was similar to the doctrine of Balaam in that it spoke of spiritual and and moral compromise. So that's one view that it was similar to the, the first doctrine we talked about. But other scholars, and I'm leaning more towards this view, believe that it was a reference to spiritual hierarchy. Spiritual hierarchy. And let me explain. The word Nicolaitan, it's a compound word. It's composed of two words, and it means to conquer the people. It's taken from the word Nike. Maybe some of you are wearing Nikes this morning. That's a Greek word. It means to conquer. And it also comes from the word laos, which means people. So the word Nicolaitans means to conquer the people. And so many people believe that this doctrine, this group, is a reference to a group that were in the church of Pergamos trying to conquer or trying to spiritually rule over the people, trying to have a a hierarchy, abusing their authority and power. And instead of serving the church, Instead of shepherding the people of God, they were ruling over them with an iron fist. They were abusing the flock and they were making distinctions. Like if they were better or higher or gooder than anyone else. And so the Lord sent a word of correction to this group. And he told them, man, man, I'm not pleased. I hate this. I don't like it. I'm not about all this spiritual hierarchy. And you have this holy group that is better than everyone else in the church. Always remember that church leaders, they're not called to rule over the people or abuse the people, but they're called to serve the people and to shepherd. The people, you know, I praise God for the example and the mentor that I have in my dad and and my mom who who passed away. And from the beginning, when when I started out in the ministry and when they kind of brought me under their wing to help serve and assist. One of the first things they taught me and they showed me was that the position of a pastor, the position of a spiritual leader of a mentor is one of a servant that that's what it's all about that God 
has placed you in this position or in the position that you might find yourself in over someone or serving someone. Not to abuse authority and not to try to get a crowd or a following. But God has placed us in this position just to serve the people and to wash their feet spiritually, not not physically, unless your feet are dirty and they need a washing. (laughs) But that's what it's all about. Serving and shepherding the flock. You see, the Lord, he's the head. He's the ruler. So there's only one head. There's only one ruler. There's only one boss. And I'm not that one. Amen. Either is my dad or Cheeto or anyone else. Joan on the worship. We're not the head. We're not the boss. We're servants. Faithfully serving the boss. The Lord Jesus Christ. There's no distinctions. I'm not better than you because I'm teaching this morning and you're not better than me because you're sitting down this morning. But we're all equal in the eyes of the Lord. Some have been called to teach. Some have been called to pastor. But some have been called to do other things. But in the Lord's eyes, all that matters is faithfulness. Are you faithful to your calling? And what we do is we all come to church and we serve one another in love as the body to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's no distinctions. There's no spiritual hierarchy. But we're here to serve you. We're here to love you. We're here to help you. And I would just say this on the side. I'm never too too busy. A lot of times people tell me this and, oh, man, it hurts my feelings. So if you ever say this, know this, you're hurting my feelings. They say, Adam, I was going to call you. I was going to go to you for help. But I know that you're busy. Ouch. That hurts. When you say that to me, you offend me. You hurt my feelings because I'm never too busy because that's my calling. You, you're more than you're more important than maybe a teaching or a sermon or an activity because I've been called to minister to people. That's the ministry. That's the calling. And I'm never too busy. Now, I'm not going to say that my dad is never too busy because He's a lot more busier than me, (laughs) but me personally, I'm never too busy. So please don't say that. We're here to serve you. We're here to love you. We're here to help you. How many could say amen to that? Amen. So the third thing we see is the word of correction by Christ. Let's look at the fourth thing. We got to hurry, family. We only got 50 minutes left. Just kidding. And the next thing we want to see is verse 16, the word of exhortation by Christ. The fourth thing we see is the word of exhortation. In verse 16, the Lord exhorted the church to do one thing. And this was the one thing. Repent. Repent. Or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them, against these groups who hold the doctrine of Balaam. In the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And so to those who were compromising, to those who were bringing the world into the church, to those who were trying to rule over and abuse the people, the Lord had one exhortation for them. And the exhortation was simply this. Repent, repent. In other words, the Lord told them, stop living like the world. Stop sinning. Stop compromising. Stop being prideful in thinking you rule over the church 
Stop it. Repent. Change your attitude. Change your actions. And be holy. Be blameless before me. Repent. You know, that's a word that is rarely used in church today. They'll tell you to do everything else except to repent. They'll say, go get counseling. Go to therapy. You know, (laughs) read this book. Take this class. They'll tell you everything to do except for the main thing you need to do. You need to repent. You need to stop it. You need to have a change of mind. That's what the word repent means. That leads to a change of action and conduct. Because if you don't, and this is what the Lord said to the church, to the groups. He said that if they don't repent... He was going to bring a swift and a severe judgment upon them. It was serious. It was urgent. It wasn't something that could have been postponed. You can never postpone repentance. It's something that needs to happen immediately, right away, at that very moment, because if not, There will be consequences, severe consequences. Sin is nothing to mess around with. Sin just destroys, it enslaves, and ultimately it brings death. And this morning the Lord tells you, and the Lord even tells me, that if you find yourself in a spiritual compromise if you're living in the church but living like the world the lord tells us to repent to stop it to stay away and to get rid of sin confess your sins turn to him for forgiveness and pursue holiness pursue holiness You know, I love what Paul says to Timothy. Flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. And that's what we need to do. And that's what we need to be all about. We must not intermingle or mix with the things of this world. God has called us to be different. Everything about us needs to be different. The way we dress, the way we talk, the things we hear and the things we see and the things we do and the way we act, we're called to be different. We're called to be holy. We we can't be like intermingling with sin in the world. Because when we do that, we lose our testimony. And there's nothing different about us. There's nothing. How are we who are called to be light, called to be salt, how can we live in darkness? How can we live like the world? You know, and and that has plagued the church for centuries. That they are intermingled with the things of the world. And the non-believers come... They look around, they examine, they observe the Christians, and they say, wait a minute. They're doing, they're acting, they're saying the same things that I'm doing. So why become a Christian? There's nothing different. I'm just going to go do my own thing because they're doing the same thing that I'm doing. And we lose our testimony we lose our power when holiness goes the power goes with it and this morning the lord tells us and exhorts us repent this morning if you're doing something if you're feeling something 
if you're hearing or looking at something that's dishonoring to the Lord, man, you need to stop. You need to repent. You need to confess your sins. You need to receive your forgiveness by faith in the blood of Christ. And you need to pursue righteousness. Because if you don't, friend, family, man, there's going to be severe consequences. Compromise, sin always brings consequences. And this morning, the Lord tells you and he tells me, repent. You know, like when I'm saying that, I'm thinking of the words of Pastor David Hawking when he came and preached. About 10 times he yelled, repent, repent. Man, that's what the church needs to hear. Sanctify yourself before the Lord. Repent and be holy. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Amen. We got to be set apart. We got to start talking about sanctification about being pure and holy because that's what the Lord desires out of us. And so the fourth thing, the Lord exhorted the church and he exhorted them to repent, to repent of their spiritual compromise and their spiritual hierarchy. Let's finish our study, family. Got about five minutes and we want to finish by looking at the promise of Christ. In verse 17, Jesus ends his message with a promise to all those who overcome. Now, if you recall in 1 John chapter 5, verse 5, John tells us that overcomers are those who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So overcomers are genuine believers who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and who have been born again by the Spirit of God. And so for those genuine believers in verse 17, the Lord promises them two things, two things. And we're going to end with this family. The first thing Jesus promises them is some of the hidden manna to eat. Read verse 17 with me. The Lord says to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Now I know you're reading that and you're thinking, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> what is that speaking of? Let me try to explain. In, in the book of Exodus, chapter 16, we learn that as the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, the Lord fed them with manna. It was some type of food that rained down from the heavens every morning. And the Lord provided and supplied their needs with men. Now, the Bible teaches us there in Exodus chapter 16 and also in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 4. That some of this manna, some of this heavenly food was placed in a golden pot and it was placed in the Ark of the Covenant as a memorial of what the Lord had done for his people. And so some of this manna was placed in a golden pot and it was hidden or it was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And so it became hidden manna. Because it was placed in the ark. Now, according to Revelations chapter 11, verse 19, John tells us that the ark of the covenant is in heaven. Now, that's very disputable what exactly that means. And we can't talk about that this morning, maybe for a future study. So, according to the Lord... It would seem that one day we're going to get some of the hidden manna that was hidden in the ark. 
You guys are like, whoa, trip out. And all that means is this, that one day we're going to have some type of banquet or feast in heaven. That in the same way the Lord provided for his people in the wilderness, the Lord is going to provide for us in heaven. And we're going to be feasting and rejoicing and just celebrating in a heavenly banquet. However, until that day, until we partake of the hidden manna in heaven, listen to this. You can partake of the bread of life that came down from heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ. So make sure you're daily feasting on him because in the same way, physical bread provides strength to the body, the bread of life will provide strength to your spirit. So make sure you're feasting on the Lord. One day you're going to partake of this hidden manna and what exactly it means. Only the Lord knows at the end of the day, there's a mystery to it. But one day you're going to partake of it. But until that day, you can partake of the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is all you need. He'll give you strength. He'll give you energy. He'll satisfy and fulfill you like you wouldn't believe it. And make sure you're feasting on Jesus. Amen. Make sure you're hungry for Jesus. You know, many of us this morning might be hungry this morning hopefully it's for jesus and not for mcdonald's amen let's look at the second thing the second thing the lord promises those who overcome is a white stone with a new name written on it continue with me verse 17 the lord says and i will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it now let me explain what this means in antiquity in ancient days a white stone was given to someone who was found innocent in a trial and a black stone was given to someone who was found guilty in a trial you know historians tell us that there on the Areopagus in athens when there was a trial that was serious, the jury, they would put a white stone in a urn, in a jar, if the person was innocent. But if he was guilty, they would put a black stone. And so by the Lord giving us a white stone, this is what it represents. That for all of eternity, we will be found innocent of our crimes, of our sins, and of our lawlessness. Listen to this. By placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone, you will be justified in the sight of God and you will be acquitted of all your sins. What does the word justified means? It means to be legally declared righteous in the sight of God. And it means to be acquitted of all your sins. You see, the law condemns us. The law tells you, tells me that we're guilty. Case closed. There's nothing to argue. There's nothing to talk about. But when we come to Christ, he removes our guilt and he justifies us. And now when God sees me, he says, not guilty. Man, praise God that this morning we can raise our hands and we can present ourselves before the judge of all the earth. And we present ourselves not guilty or innocent because we've been imputed the very righteousness of the son of God. And when God sees me and when he sees you, he doesn't see our mistakes, doesn't see our sins. He doesn't see our failures or our bad record, but he sees us covered with the righteousness of his very son. 
Jesus Christ. And he says, not guilty. There's no condemnation in Christ because we've been justified through Christ and we've been acquitted of all sins. And so the Lord promises us a white stone. And what does that mean? That means for all of eternity, we're going to be accepted by God. And friend, I don't know about you, but if there's one person I want to be accepted by, it's by God. Amen. Amen. And so we come to the end of this third letter. And the Lord tells you and the Lord tells me, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Family, let's repent from worldliness and let's pursue holiness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter. Stand with me, family.